it's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, May 2nd. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. Tonight on the California Report, the state's rooftop solar market remains in limbo. There's been claims of a California Public Utilities Commission employee spreading disinformation. Something most groups seem to agree on, though. They're ready for the CPUC to stop dragging its feet and make a decision. And in National Native News, advocates hope to see the Catholic Church apologize for its role in U.S. Indian boarding schools. Then Felton Pruitt brings us everything we need to know about upcoming events in Nevada City in this month's Chamber Report. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. California's last remaining nuclear energy facility, Diablo Canyon in San Luis Obispo County, produces enough carbon-free energy to power 3 million homes each year. That's about 7% of the state's annual energy profile, and it's scheduled to shut down by 2025. Now, Governor Gavin Newsom says he's worried about energy shortages when Diablo goes offline, and he may consider trying to delay the closure. KCBX's Rachel Showalter has more. Newsom told the LA Times editorial board he's planning to ask for a share of the $6 billion in federal funds President Biden announced last month, which are meant to save nuclear plants at risk of closing. Central Coast Democratic Congressman Salud Carbajal says he supports renewable energy, but... If Governor Newsom is changing course, it is imperative for him to include the same community stakeholders who were part of the original decision to retire the Diablo Canyon power plant. Diablo Canyon's operator, Utility PG&E, has previously said it doesn't plan to renew the plant's operating license past 2025. But in a statement Friday, PG&E spokesperson Suzanne Hassan said the utility is committed to California's clean energy future and is open to considering all options to ensure continued safe and reliable energy delivery to customers. Newsom made clear the plant will still definitely close eventually, even if there is a delay. Nuclear energy advocates say the shift to renewables isn't happening fast enough in California to make up for the loss of Diablo Canyon. Heather Hoff works at the power plant and founded the nuclear advocacy group Mothers for Nuclear. Speaking on behalf of the group, Hoff says the plant is a huge source of clean energy, and keeping it open for longer would reduce the state's reliance on fossil fuels. I'm just so glad that people are willing to talk about it and keep considering that as an option. It's not too late. Jane Swanson with San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, an anti-nuclear group, says she's concerned with the safety of nuclear energy. It makes me feel quite terrified. Every day, every year it operates further, it becomes older and less reliable. PG&E says the plant has a long-standing record of safe operation. Still, Swanson says Mothers for Peace would evaluate possibilities for legal action to block the continued operation of the plant if PG&E chooses to renew their license. The deadline for PG&E to apply for the federal funds is May 19th. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Showalter in San Luis Obispo. And change is coming to California's rooftop solar market. But what that change looks like remains a mystery. Here's more from KPBS reporter Eric Anderson in San Diego. California is still waiting for a reboot of efforts to overhaul the state's solar power system three months after the governor essentially shut the process down. I'll say this about the plan. We still have some work to do. The January state budget news conference was really the only time that Gavin Newsom spoke publicly about the utility-friendly plan unveiled in December. 
that blueprint, called for steep monthly connection fees and slashed the value of electricity residents sell back to the grid. Do I think uh, that changes need to be made? Yes, I do. But since then, crickets. It's all he's really said. Dave Rosenfeld works with the Solar Rights Alliance, a group pushing back against the first CPUC proposal. He warns that the plan would kill the state's popular and successful solar industry. It's remarkable. Something this popular, something this clear where the public is at. And then, you know, again, his primary surrogate at the CPUC, Alice Reynolds, has said also remarkably little. But Rosenfeld says the wall of silence has cracks. And he's concerned about what's leaking through. CPUC staffer Simon Baker told state lawmakers at the end of March that non-solar customers are paying billions of dollars to subsidize solar. These remarks came from Baker during a legislative hearing. I should clarify that there are um, other points that are on the record as well, and it is a, a disputed issue of fact. Disputed, but Baker only presented one side of the story. He echoed utility complaints that costs linked to rooftop solar are being shifted to non-solar customers. And Assemblymember Wendy Correa, in turn, echoed Baker's remarks and even read them into the legislative record. The cost shift in not addressing net energy metering, which hurts renters and uh, low-income families, would be at the tune of $6.7 billion if not addressed by 2030. Correct? based on what you just said. Yes, that's what I said. The Solar Rights Alliance's David Rosenfeld says Baker is spreading utility disinformation. The opposite is true, by the way. Rooftop solar users not only pay their fair share, but they actually reduce the cost of the electrical grid and saves all ratepayers' money whether or not they have solar. Rosenfeld says rooftop solar does away with the need to build costly transmission lines to large solar farms in the backcountry. And power lines that don't get built won't start fires that can cost the state and utilities billions. Since January, the commission's meetings, which didn't even have solar on the agenda, were filled with hours of comments like these from Oakland's Area White. I totally oppose any kind of solar tax, rooftop solar, including fixed charges that discriminate against solar users. The state's investor-owned utilities, including San Diego Gas and Electric, are staying quiet on the issue. SDG&E repeatedly declined a chance to be interviewed, but said in a statement they look forward to a CPUC decision. And that is something utility-funded groups like Affordable Energy for All agree with. Kathy Fairbanks says enough already. Legislators have been complaining about the lack of movement at the Public Utilities Commission. The solar industry is complaining about the same thing. We're complaining about the same thing. I think everyone would like to see this wrapped up. When that decision comes, it could completely change California's solar landscape or only make minor adjustments. Regulators have to balance utility demands to stay profitable, while at the same time growing the solar market so California can meet rigorous carbon reduction goals. For the California Report, I'm Eric Anderson in San Diego. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. 
and Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And that's the California Report for Monday, May 2nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening. Tonight, National Native News asks the question, how does the U.S. compare to its northern neighbor in addressing the harm caused by Indian boarding schools? Advocates argue Canada is ahead of the United States when it comes to acknowledging harms committed against Indigenous people throughout the country. Those working with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition hope to see apologies from the Catholic Church for their role in the U.S. schools. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration plans to hold advisory committee meetings next month regarding COVID-19 vaccines, including emergency use for younger children. Currently, adults and children five and older are eligible for vaccines. There's yet to be approval for children under five. FDA Commissioner Robert Califf on Friday told a group of journalists the FDA has a written request for emergency use authorization from Moderna, but the FDA does not have complete data. Califf says they'll act as quickly as possible possible, but stresses the need to analyze all information and data before making a decision. There will be no delays. That's a, uh, a clear um, statement, but we can't set dates until we see what's in. A COVID vaccine for younger children could become available as early as June. That's when advisory committee meetings are tentatively scheduled. Califf says they're waiting for Pfizer's application. He took part in a question and answer panel in person at the Association of Healthcare Journalists 2022 conference in Austin. Advocates with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition would like to see the Catholic Church apologize to American Indian and Alaska Native people for the church's role in U.S. boarding schools. The coalition would also like the church to make available boarding school and mission records to tribal nations, tribal citizens, boarding school survivors or descendants, and Native organizations to review. This follows Pope Francis's apology in April to Canada's Indigenous people for the Catholic Church's role in Indian residential schools. Healing Coalition board member Joni Romero says the Pope's apology is a step. There's so much momentum happening right now, and much like our Métis, our Inuit and First Nations relatives in Canada, we want an acknowledgement as well here in the United States. And it's important to also understand that each community and their respective experiences are going to be very different in terms of what they define as reparations, what that could look like. I think that the next opportunity would be for the Pope to come to the United States as well, to step foot on our soil here on Turtle Island and to begin having those conversations with our communities. Healing Coalition Deputy Chief Executive Officer Samuel Torres says the coalition has helped with legislation in Congress to establish a Truth and Healing Commission similar to the one in Canada. Canada is in some ways, shape or form, uh, a bit further ahead than the United States. As it relates to the work in the coalition, we um, helped to write uh, both H.R. 5444 and Senate Bill 2907, the Truth and Healing Commission Bill on Indian Boarding Schools Policy Act. Um, and we are generating a lot of interest, a lot of uh, doing a lot of education work and advocacy around the bill. 
but this is work that needs to be codified into law and needs to be uh, included within the political discourse of the United States. The Healing Coalition is seeking a response from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops about efforts in the U.S. to address the harms committed against Indigenous people across the country. The Pope's apology to Canada's Indigenous people follows meetings at the Vatican with First Nations, Métis and Inuit delegates in late March to the beginning of April. Quapaw Nation Chairman Joseph Byrd has been selected to represent Eastern Oklahoma as a liaison to the U.S. Justice Department. He'll serve on the Tribal Nations Leadership Council representing the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Eastern Oklahoma District, which includes nearly 20 tribes. The council is set to meet with the U.S. Attorney General this month to discuss funding, the implementation of VAWA's reauthorization, missing and murdered indigenous people, and public safety in Indian country. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. The Indian Loan Guarantee and Insurance Program has worked with lenders for almost 50 years, supporting them as they support you. Need startup funds or a refinance? Information at bia.gov DCI, which supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at today's regional news. April 28th was the first deadline requiring Nevada County candidates to file either a Fair Political Practices Commission Form 460 or 470. However, some on the ballot have yet to meet the deadline and disclose campaign expenditures and other finances. Ubinet reports District 3 candidate Valentina Masters, District 4 candidate Calvin Clark, Assessor candidate Gerald Bouchor, Auditor Controller candidate Rob Tribble, and Clerk Recorder candidate Paul Gilbert show no filings on the public portal for campaign finance disclosure. Nevada City Council candidate Ken Merdinger also has no forms listed on the website. All other candidates for 60 forms are available on the portal website. The League of Women Voters will hold three election forums this week at the Nevada County Rood Center. Nevada County Clerk Recorder Registrar of Voters Candidate Forum is Tuesday, May 3rd from 6 to 7.30 p.m. State Assembly District 1 Candidate Forum will be Wednesday, May 4th, 6 to 7.30 p.m. And the Nevada County Assessor Candidate Forum is Thursday, May 5th, 6 to 6.45 p.m. The Lake Tahoe Wildfire Awareness Campaign begins this month. The campaign hopes to encourage all counties in the Lake Tahoe Basin to focus on fire preparedness and prevention topics, such as defensible space, evacuation preparedness, and wildfire prevention. The campaign, which runs through October, is in response to last year's Caldor Fire. The Tahoe Fire and Fuels team, the organization behind the awareness campaign, says the Caldor Fire was a wake-up call and a reminder that the Lake Tahoe Basin is a fire-prone landscape. The agency hopes to preempt wildfire emergencies by working with residents and visitors to responsibly prepare for fire season in high-fired hazard areas. Nevada Placer Yuba Cal Fire received grant funding to help with impacts from December's colossal storm. 
The nearly million-dollar grant's primary purpose is to provide financial support to wildfire risk mitigation. The storm's heavy snowfall downed trees left and right, adding to an already heavy wildfire fuel load. Caltrans construction work will shut down the westbound I-80 on-ramp at Atlantic Street, the right turn lane to the westbound I-80 on-ramp, and right lane on Atlantic Street tonight and Tuesday night from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. Wednesday will see a break in construction. Then the same closures continue overnight Thursday, May 5th, and Friday, May 6th, once again from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. Westbound I-80 motorists will be deterred along Harding Boulevard or North Sunrise Avenue to Douglas Boulevard during the overnight ramp closure. Now let's take a look at our regional weather. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight clear with a low around 41. Tuesday sunny with a high near 72. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight mostly clear with a low around 24. Breezy with wind between 15 and 20 miles per hour. Tuesday, sunny with a high near 60. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight mostly clear with a low around 52. Wind between 13 and 16 miles per hour with gusts as high as 21 miles per hour. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 83. Gusts up to 25 miles per hour. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Stick around to hear what's around the corner in Nevada City. Stuart Baker chats with Felton Pruitt in this month's Nevada City Chamber Report. We're talking with Stuart Baker. He's the executive director of the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for joining us, Stuart. Great. Thank you, Felton. We just had a real uh, successful Earth Fest in Nevada City. Why don't you give us some of the highlights of what happened? Sure. It was uh, the first ever, and there's always that risk that when you have an event for the first time that you throw a party and no one shows up. But that absolutely was not the case. There were a lot of people. We had 40 uh, street vendors that were there. We had music going on all day and uh, activities for kids and storytelling. And it was just a really wonderful vibe. And we're looking forward to making it one of the signature events that we'll be having in the future. So look forward to next year's if you miss this year's. So what else is on the calendar for Nevada City in the next couple of months? Well, we have a little bit of a pause in May, but June is pretty packed at this point, at least as far as we're concerned in terms of organizing. Our first event is going to be on June 11th, and that's going to be celebrating the reopening of Commercial Street. And if anyone's been downtown in the last month or two, they've seen what a mess uh, Commercial Street has been with all of the hard construction that they've been doing. But that's coming to a close, and somewhere around the 1st of June, we look to have everything and how it's going to look for hopefully the next 50, 100 years or so. Uh, and we're going to have a what we're calling a long table awards event. So the chamber usually has uh, awards that we give out to community members at the first of the year, and that takes place at the foundry. And this year, with COVID being um, at a peak back then, we had to cancel that event. And so now we've decided to both celebrate the reopening of Commercial Street and have a long table where we have the local 
restaurants on the street cater the event and uh, and have folks on a very long table enjoying a, a nice summer evening. And that's again on June 11th. Tickets will be available starting next week on our website, uh, NevadaCityChamber.com. So if you're looking to attend a really sweet community event where we're celebrating folks that do a lot to make the community better, this is the event for you. The following day, we're going to have Village Market Day, and that's that was after a really successful uh, event that happened last year, and it's basically an opportunity for the merchants to put a lot of their wares on the street and also have some great music going on, and uh, that will be going on on June 12th. That's the Sunday, and that's from 11 to 5. And then what's coming together as a plan right now the following weekend on June 18th, that's a Saturday, uh, there's going to be an LGBTQ dance party that's going to also be happening on Commercial Street. And the details are coming together and we'll be announcing in the next uh, week or so the times and the music, etc. So look for that. And that's going to be celebrating uh, Gay Pride Month in Nevada City. And there's also going to be an effort to put some rainbow flags uh, down Broad Street, etc. for the whole month of June. So that's uh, looking to be really exciting as well. And then, of course, in July, July 4th, we are hosting this year, and we're going to have a parade like we have in years past um, down Broad Street, and uh, it looks to be once again, getting back to normal in Nevada City uh, being the host place for the uh, annual Fourth of July parade. We're working through, and again, details are unfolding in um, this week and next, but to be able to have the fireworks at the fairgrounds this year, unlike uh, last year where they were over Dorsey Drive. So um, nothing has been confirmed. We're trying to make that switch. There will be fireworks for sure. And we're hoping that we can pull this off and have them at the fairgrounds. That would be excellent because I know that's such a big uh, thing for our community every year. Right. A great way to celebrate the uh, birth of our nation and to be in the company of folks in a beautiful environment as, as our fairgrounds. And then looking a little bit farther into your crystal ball there, I guess we're going to be doing uh, summer nights once again. Yeah, summer nights is happening. And then also uh, we'll be having Art Walk on uh, the first Fridays of every month starting June. So that's actually our official next event. And we'll be doing a little bit of a different format this year with a little more music. So look forward to that. So it's the first Friday of every month from June till September. And then Summer Nights is going to be another great opportunity to go out and see the town with fellow locals because it's midweek on Wednesday nights in July, the, the three Wednesday nights in the middle of July after the 4th. And so, yeah, so uh, like I said, the summer's coming together in a, in a wonderful way, and uh, we're looking forward to having a lot of great events happen. If people want more information about everything Nevada City-ish, uh, what's the website to go to? The website is nevadacitychamber.com. Very good. We've been talking with Stuart right. Baker, Executive Director from the uh, Chamber. Thanks a lot for all the info, Stuart. Hey, no problem, Felton. We'll talk next month. That's our newscast for this Monday, May 2nd. KVMR gets support from The Pizza Joint, 
offering New York-style pizza with fresh ingredients by the slicer pie, plus other Italian specialties, salads, and local beer. Open daily for takeout. Commercial Street, Nevada City, thepizzajointnc.com. And Green Acres Nursery and Supply, reminding listeners that it's time to fertilize citrus with organics to help set fruit. Locally blended brands available in stores. More information at idiggreenacres.com. Keep it tuned to your community radio station. At 6.30, it's Disability Wrap. On tonight's episode, host Carl Sigmund talks with Prashant Thinkatrum of UC Davis about the current and future state of accessible public transit in California and beyond. Will we all be heading to our appointments in self-driving cars? What can we do while technology and land use planning catch up to community needs? Stay tuned to find out more. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off.